So we are in the midst of a series, like Danielle was saying, um, that is all about his story. This is, we recognize that history is in many ways, and especially the Bible, is a story about God. And there's a lot of different parts to it, a lot of different people that play roles in that. But ultimately, there's one unified story that runs all the way from Genesis, all the way through Revelation, and it is ultimately God's story. And it is a story of a father in pursuit of his prodigal children. And over the last couple of weeks, we've already started looking in Genesis, and really we've camped out in just the first three chapters at first, and it's going to speed up radically from this point out. But the first couple of chapters have revealed that God spoke everything into existence, and then he created man to be his representatives, uniquely created in his image to be the stewards over creation. We have been entrusted with taking dominion over creation, not so that we can kind of make ourselves comfortable and use it any way we wish, but that we would be stewards of it. We are his representatives. He has entrusted the care of his good creation to us. And then as we saw last week, God decided to create us with the capacity to be in relationship with him. And in order to do so, he had to give us free will because if we don't have free will, if we don't have the ability to choose not to be in relationship with somebody, then we don't have the ability to choose to be in relationship. The only way that we can have genuine relationship with somebody is the ability to choose not to. And so he created mankind with the ability to choose to obey, to disobey, to follow him and call him Lord or, or to spurn his, his desires for a relationship and say, no, I'm going to be the captain of my own ship. And sadly, or perhaps inevitably, our most ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose to spurn God's leadership, lordship. And part of that is because of the enemy. He came in and said, you know, began to cast doubt on God's trustworthiness. Does he really care about you? Because God's holding out on you. He has made you deficient in some way. And when Adam and Eve realized that there was a part of them that may not have been everything that they could be, that they didn't know the difference between good and evil, and they began to question whether God really had their best interests in mind, then they decided to take matters into their own hands. And they ate the fruit in complete disobedience to God, but also as a declaration of self-reliance. If you won't give it to us, then we will take it for ourselves. And we saw the effects of that. Sin and its cousin shame come crashing into God's reality and, and the man and woman hide themselves not only from God or from one another, but even from themselves. They cover themselves with anything they can to protect their vulnerability. And as we saw, God then enters in and one of the things we realized about God is that he is both just, but he's also merciful. He's just in the sense that he can't simply turn a blind eye to our disobedience. And there are consequences to the choices that Adam and Eve make. But he had the right to strike them dead. He said, if you eat this fruit, you will die. And that is a part of the curse, is that death entered into the world. But he didn't strike them dead in that moment. He decided instead to curse them in a way that, we, we talked about the curses. They're painful, but they're not simply blindly punitive. Because they're also merciful. God tweaked the very areas that we would tend to run to for identity the very things that we seek our validation and our fulfillment from. For the women, he cursed their relationships as both a mother and as a wife. And for the men, he cursed the work of our hands. No longer could these things that we would so naturally find our identity in fulfill us or make us feel complete. In a way, it's almost like God carved out a God-shaped hole in every single one of us 
so that we, although we would try to fill that hole up with so many other things, at the end of the day, we would recognize our deep-seated need for a relationship with God and ultimately, hopefully, find our way back into the arms of our loving God. And as the picture closes on Genesis chapter 3, we saw God doing what Adam and Eve had tried so desperately to do. He kills the first animal. This is the first sacrifice and first death recorded in all of history. He kills this animal and creates skins to cover them, to cover their nakedness and their vulnerability. And then he casts them out of the Garden of Eden. Now, You would think because of God's mercy of not striking them dead and because Adam and Eve have now tasted the fruit of of disobedience and recognized that it's a bitter pill to swallow, you would think that they and their children and the the generations to come would begin to go, you know what, maybe we need to follow God and submit ourselves to him and, and allow him to be the Lord of our lives. But sadly... It goes just the opposite direction. We start to see the moral degradation begin. It's like a downward spiral. In the very next chapter, chapter 4, we see Adam and Eve's firstborn son, Cain, get jealous of his brother and ultimately kill him. But at least Cain felt some remorse when God confronted him on it. Because just a few generations later, one of Cain's great-grandchildren starts bragging about the fact that he has murdered people. And from there, it just gets worse. It gets so bad that in Genesis chapter 6, and if you have a Bible, grab it, turn to it. We're going to just stay there for just a moment, and then ultimately we're going to end up in Genesis chapter 12. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we read about the Lord God just coming to the point where he's like, what the heck? It's like the moral compass that I put in each and every one of you is broken. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And if we keep reading in this chapter, God decides, you know what? I need to start over. Because my representatives are not representing me. They've gone just the opposite. They're absolutely the antithesis of the heart that I hope that they would have. And so God decides to give mankind over to death. But, and we're going to see this as a pattern throughout Scripture as we go on with this big God story, we're going to see that God does not completely turn his back on mankind and wipe it out. He always leaves a remnant. He never fully gives up. And so although he's going to flood the earth, he chooses one man, a guy named Noah, and the rest of his family, and he says, through you, I'm going to save you from this flood, and through you, I'm going to rebuild and repopulate the earth. You will be my representatives and, your, and the generations that will come. And so we see God save Noah. There's a movie coming out that I don't know if it really closely follows that story, but you know, the heart is God saying, I'm going to redo this, and we're going to try to, we're going to, try to reboot this whole thing. Noah is saved from the flood in his family. They have children, and the generations proceed. And then we come to Genesis chapter 11. And we read about all of Noah's children and all of the people coming together in this, in this plain, and they begin to build a tower, the tower that we know as Babel. And we read that, and we go, what, what's the big deal? But really what's going on here is the people coming together and going, we are capable of being self-reliant. Let's build a tower as a monument to our own abilities, our own strength. This will be our declaration of independence. 
We can be self-reliant. We don't need God. We don't need anybody. And so they build this tower as a testament to their own skill, ingenuity, and abilities. And God, I mean, it's very similar to Adam and Eve's declaration of God. If you're not going to take care of us, then we'll take care of ourselves. And remember, just as God cursed Adam and Eve, kind of tweaked things in reality so that they would constantly be pointed back to them, God again comes in and he tweaks mankind. He says, if this is how you're going to respond, as you become unified, you begin to turn to your own abilities and skills and you don't rely on me, then I'm going to take away the unity that you've been relying upon. I'm going to tweak that. I'm going to, to separate you because of the languages. You'll no longer be able to understand one another. This is where we get the term babbling from the Tower of Babel. And he begins to separate mankind. Again, it's not just the act of a punitive God. This is the act of a loving father saying, I want you ultimately to find your way back into my arms. And so I'm going to frustrate the things that you would normally turn to and find your identity in. But he doesn't stop there. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. This is where we're going to begin our study this morning because we're introduced to a new character in this story. A guy named Abram. Later, his name will be changed to Abraham. I'm sure that I'm going to use them interchangeably. Please give me grace in that because at some point in the story, his name is changed and I'm going to use them both at different points. And God decides, you know what? Since all of mankind has failed to be my representatives, okay, I'm not going to try anymore. I'm going to create a nation. It'll be a nation of priests, a nation that will be my representatives to the rest of the world. This nation will be set apart from all other nations. They will be mine. And I'm going to create this nation through this guy, Abram. Now, there was nothing special about Abram. He was another pagan man who had lots of idols. And yet God called him out and said, follow me. And let's look at this invitation that God gives him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, And every time you see the Lord in capital letters, just remember, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Now, I'm going to pick on Gary Rorden because I love him. Gary, imagine if I came to you, and I know that you have lived here for a long time. You've raised your family here. You have a lot of friends. You have built a business it's thriving. You have, a, you have made a name for yourself. People respect you. You have friends. You have family. You have a church home. Imagine if I were to say, hey, Gary, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pack up everything you can into a U-Haul. So you're going to have to choose what you can take with you and what you have to keep or what you have to leave here. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your business. I want you to leave your extended family. I want you to leave your church home. I want you to leave everything that you know. I want you to pack your family into this U-Haul, go out on the 405 freeway, and I'll tell you where to go. That's tantamount to what God is saying to Abram. It's even more so than that because remember, in this society, family and tribe was everything. Your identity was not derived by what you did. Your identity was derived by who you were with, who you belonged to. And God is saying, leave that and follow me. and I will show you where to go. He's not even telling him where he's going to send him initially. But God doesn't just kind of say, go. He also says, I'm going to bless you in some ways. Let's keep reading in in verse 2 of chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who curse you, and whoever curses you, I'm sorry, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then catch this, because this is probably the most important statement of this entire thing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I find that very interesting that God constantly is talking about blessing and he says, hey, I'm going to bless you, but it's not just going to be for your own good. Ultimately, I'm going to bless all of mankind through you. Now, we know how the story kind of plays out and ultimately it's going to be through his line that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is going to come through whom God is going to redeem mankind and give us the ability to enter back into relationship with him. But Abram doesn't know this part of the story. It hasn't played out yet. So God just basically says, I'm going to bless you if you'll follow me, if you'll trust me, if you'll leave everything that you know and come with me. And we read in verse four that Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot, his nephew, went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And God ultimately leads him from Haran up north into the region of Canaan, what is today the promised land, or, you know, where Israel is. This is the, le- the region of Canaan. And, and there's going to be several stories that we're going to jump over. But turn now to, to, ver- or to chapter 15. I know we're going quickly. Because the goal here is not to look at every single nuance of every single story, but rather to kind of follow the thread of God's plan of redemption throughout the Bible. <clears throat> and in chapter 15, God establishes his covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is simply an agreement between two or more parties. And so we read in chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. And that word that is translated there, shield, can also be translated your sovereign, your Lord. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my own household will be my heir. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you bless me monetarily. If there's no child to take on my name and to continue to build this nation that you say you're going to build, then what's the point? Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you could possibly count them. And then God said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then we read in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and his faith in God's word was credited to him as righteousness or as right standing. In other words, Abram's standing with God was not dependent upon anything he had done, but upon his trust in God which is a contrast to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Because there, they didn't trust God. They took matters into their own hands. And ultimately, it affected their relationship with him, their standing with him. Abraham's relationship with God was dependent upon how he viewed God, his trust in him, and therefore his willingness to obey. And it's interesting because that is, is perfectly echoes what we hear in the New Testament. It is by grace we have been saved, by faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. We are saved by faith. And it's interesting that all the way back here at the very beginning of Genesis, we're seeing that 
Abram's relationship with God was contingent upon his faith in God. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, God also said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. He's talking about the, the, the land of Canaan. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Okay, you say you're going to give me the land, but how can I know that? I mean, I don't have any children. I'm 75 years old. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, let me stop here for just a moment because I want to explain what's about to happen. Otherwise, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. In our, in our society, when we want to make a contractual agreement, you'll sit down, maybe you'll grab an attorney in there, and, and you'll, you'll write out the stipulations of that agreement. And then whom, all the parties that are involved will sign their names in ink, saying, I agree to the stipulations of this agreement. Well, in the ancient Near East, when they were making a covenant, an agreement between two or more parties, they would sign it in blood. And there was a lot of different ways that this took place. One of the ways they did this was by what they called cutting a covenant. When, they, when, when you're going to read later that they made a covenant, it could actually be translated cutting a covenant. And what it looked like sometimes was that they would cut animals in half. They'd put one half on this side and one half on this side, creating a path of blood is what they called it. And then all the parties that were agreeing to that covenant would walk between the bodies of these animals that had been sac- sacrificed and separated. Basically saying, if I do not uphold all of the agreements that we are making in this covenant, then may my life be forfeit just like these animals' lives are forfeit. That would be cutting a covenant, one form of it. And that's pretty much what's about to happen. So, the Lord said, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10, Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. And then the birds of the prey come down, and they're trying to eat these animals, and Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God is saying, I'm going to give you this land, but for 400 years, and I love that he's saying this even before Abraham has his first child, right? He's saying, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years, foretelling the enslavement in Egypt that we're going to be looking at next week. He says, but don't worry, I will lead them out. I will punish that nation. They will come out with great possessions, and ultimately I will give them back this land that I am promising to you. Verse 17 Now God is about to establish this covenant by walking the path of blood. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared. These are the symbols for God, which I find very interesting because you have a a, a smoking fire pot, a pillar of smoke, and you have a flaming torch, a pillar of fire. Where have we heard of those images? 
God, when he led his people, and we're going to see this next week, when God leads his people out of Egypt, he led them in day by a pillar of smoke, pillar of cloud, and at night as a pillar of fire. So God is using the same symbolism for himself. He is a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now notice, it's God passing between this path of blood, but not Abram. Abram's sleeping at this point, and it's God alone who walks the path of blood because it's God alone who, in this instance, is covenanting and is promising what he's about to say. Verse 18. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give you this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gershites, and Jebusites, and I know that I totally mispronounced half of those. Doesn't matter. I'm giving you this land. People won't be able to pronounce them because they won't remember their names because ultimately they will remember this as the land of Israel. This is the covenant that God makes. Now, later on, particularly in chapter 17, God is going to have some covenantal stipulations for Abram. At that point, he's going to say, I want you to cut a covenant with me. Rather than cutting some animals in half, I'm going to have you cut that in your own body. You're going to be circumcised. And by the blood of your own body, you are going to covenant with me and say, I am set apart for God. So there are some covenantal stipulations, but they're they're brought later on. Here, God is simply saying, I'm covenanting two things. I will give you a huge nation birthed out of a child that I'm going to have birthed to you. And then secondly, I'm going to give you this land, what we today call the promised land. Those are the things we see in chapter 15 that God promises to Abram. Now, time passes after this promise that God makes. Months become years. One year, two years, five years, ten years, fifteen years pass. And no child. Abraham, his name has now been changed to Abraham. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is childless. And they begin to wonder, has God forgotten the promise that he made to us? Maybe it's the problem is with Sarah. Maybe she can't have children. Sarah goes, okay, tell you what. I obviously can't give you children. So why don't you take my maid, marry her, and have children, and then at least the promise can be fulfilled. And so Abraham goes, okay, that sounds good. He marries Sarah's maid. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to a boy, a kid named Ishmael. Finally, I have an heir. Finally, the promise of God can be fulfilled. And then God comes and says, no. This is not the child of the promise. This is not who the, the line through whom I am going to bless all of the world. Five more years, ten more years pass, and still the child doesn't come. And then finally, when Abraham is 100 years old, his wife is 95 years old. So some of you ladies who are going, uh, 95. She finally gets pregnant and gives birth to a child. Some 25 years after God had promised to do so. And she gives birth to a healthy male heir named Isaac. And God says, this is the child through whom the promise is going to be passed on. But now, all of a sudden, there's a problem. What about Ishmael? Ishmael's older than Isaac by several years. And Sarah becomes nervous for her son. What if Ishmael attempts to kill him so that he can be the heir? This can't happen. And isn't it interesting that when we try to take matters into our own hands and help God, we tend to make matters worse, don't we? We end up 
doing more damage because they didn't fully trust God in this instance. They began to think, well, maybe God's forgotten. And so they tried to take matters into their own hands. And ultimately, they have to send Ishmael and his mother away in order to protect Isaac. And we, in our culture, don't understand this. It was a completely different time and a different culture, but ultimately they cast Ishmael away. Abraham disowns him. He no longer is considered his son. So that Isaac becomes his only son. But God doesn't turn his back on Ishmael. In fact, because of Abraham's pleading with God, God says, I will bless him. I will make a great nation out of him. And ultimately, all of the Arab nations point back to Ishmael as their forefather. Which is interesting, because today, all of the Arab nations are the most outspoken in their desire to see the, Israel, or the, the nation of Israel utterly destroyed. Ishmael and his descendants have become the greatest thorn in the side of God's chosen people, bar none. They don't even recognize Israel's right to exist. And constantly are saying, we want to see them wiped from the face of this earth. It's just interesting that it stems back in that point. Go ahead and turn with me to chapter 22. Again, we're moving really quickly. We're skipping over some stuff. I encourage you to read it this week so you can kind of get the, the flesh it out a little bit. But the story continues. God has made this promise. I'm going to make a great nation out of you through this boy, Isaac, who is now your only son because you've disowned your firstborn. And then God decides, you know what? I'm going to give Abraham another opportunity to put his faith into action. Chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. And again, he's his only son at this point because he's disowned his firstborn. And then God says, sacrifice him, Isaac, there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. What? Sacrifice? Wait, 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 let me get this right. You promised 20, I don't know, maybe 35 years ago, because at this point, a lot of time has passed. Some people think that Isaac was at this point in his teens. So 35, 40 years ago, you promised to give me a male heir who would carry on my name, and not only that, but that you would make it a great nation through and bless all of the world through. And I finally got him, and you said, it's through Isaac that I'm going to make this great nation, and now you want me to go and sacrifice, and this makes no sense. Not only that, but I love him. He's my boy. He's my baby. I'm, and I don't know how I would respond, but listen to the way Abraham responds. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. And I, don't, I, I can't even begin to imagine what must have been swirling through Abraham's mind. <laughs> I'm going to walk over there with my boy. And I'm going to submit to my Lord because he is my Lord. And even though this doesn't make any sense, and even though it seems to fly in the face of what he's told me, I'm going to trust him. 
So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Obviously, Isaac is old enough to carry the wood for this sacrifice. Again, some people think he was in his teens. And he himself, Abraham, carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Dad, yes, my son. Well, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. <clears throat> and when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and there arranged the wood on it. Then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. Now I can only imagine if his son is old enough and strong enough to carry the wood up, he's strong enough to resist, strong enough to fight back. And I don't want to read into scripture here, but I suspect that Isaac, trusted his father and submitted in some way. Probably was scared. Probably didn't understand it. But I would suspect he submitted to his dad regardless of the outcome. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham named this, named this place, the Lord will provide and to this day, he said, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And again, he makes this declaration, you will be blessed in order to be a blessing. Now, one of the things I want to step back from for just a moment is, well, before I get there, you don't have to turn here, but in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews writes about Abraham's willingness to obey God. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises, he who believed God when he said, not only am I going to give you a son, but I'm going to make a great nation from this son, and I'm going to give you the land. Those are the promises, and he embraced those. He trusted God. But he was also willing to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, that ultimately this nation will come. And then verse 19 says this, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now here is what I find fascinating. When we look at this Genesis 22 account of Abraham and God's call to sacrifice Isaac, there are so many parallels to Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Here are just a couple of them. Abraham was told to go into the region of, what is it? 
uh, of Moriah. Okay, Abraham has said, go to the region of Moriah. Well, history tells us that the, that the mountain that Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac on is the same mountain that ultimately uh, Jerusalem was built on. And in fact, they built the temple, they believe, on the, over the same rock where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. So this, where, it, where Jerusalem is, is where the sacrifice began to take place. And remember, some centuries later, when God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice, he was tried in the temple and ultimately walked outside the gates of Jerusalem and on the same region, the same area, he was sacrificed for our sins. Furthermore, God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love and sacrifice him. John 3.16, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son to die in our place, to take our sins upon him. Abraham had Isaac carry the wood for his own sacrifice. And in the same way, Jesus carried the cross, the implement that would ultimately be part of his crucifixion. He carried that. Abraham told his son, God will provide a sacrificial lamb. And he did. Not only in that instance, but ultimately, Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God, through whom all of us, he was the sacrifice of atonement to take the sins of us upon himself. And then finally, we read in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham believed that God could raise his son from the dead. And in a way, he did by providing the the ram as a sacrifice. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, after he was died and buried for three days, was resurrected after three days, declaring victory over sin and death. There are so many parallels between this Old Testament story and Jesus Christ. And this is, this is why I used to think that the Old Testament was boring and dusty and had zero relevance to my life. I, I tended to just kind of hang out in the New Testament because it's new. Right? God is cranky in the Old Testament, and then Jesus shows up in the New Testament, so he's happy. But I have found, as I've dug into the Old Testament, that it is so rich, and it's, it provides such an unbelievable foundation for understanding the New Testament. It provides all of this color. And we begin to see that from the very beginning, there are, God is different. The heart of God is the same. It just plays out differently. And it's this beautiful picture of what will ultimately be fulfilled by God because Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son and he submitted. God ultimately would do what he was asking Abraham to do. He would sacrifice Jesus Christ in our place to bless all of us. So I want to close this morning in the same, with the same kind of question that I asked last week. So what? Sure, Abraham had a place in this. He has got a part in God's story. He's a central character. But what relevance does this have to our lives? What can we take from Abraham's life and kind of look at our own lives? A couple of thoughts. First off, Abraham was a man who trusted God ruthlessly. When God asked him to do things that flew in the face of common sense, flew in the face of of social norms, he was willing to follow him. Now, I don't doubt that Abraham had his moments where he 
he doubted God. I don't doubt that there were moments where Abraham fell flat on his face. In fact, we skipped over a couple of those instances. He did not lead a perfect life of complete and utter dependence. But when push came to shove and he had a choice before him, trust God and follow him or trust my own instincts and trust everything that I know and trust common sense, he chose God every time. And I just wonder for us, do we have that kind of faith in God that would say regardless of the cost, regardless of whether it makes sense or not to my human mind, I will follow you because you're my God. Regardless of where you call me to go, regardless of what you ask me to do, I will submit because you are ultimately Yahweh. You are my Lord. I pray for the courage to follow God in that way. And when we obey, the fun part is we begin to see that God truly is trustworthy. Jesus said, if you're my disciples and you'll do what I tell you to do, then you will realize the truth and the truth will set you free. If you obey me, you'll begin to realize that I am trustworthy. Will you obey me in your finances? Will you obey me in your thought life? Will you obey me in your marriage? Will you obey me in your workplace? Will you obey me in everything and submit every aspect of your life to me? Will you allow me to be Lord of everything? Do we have that kind of faith in our God? Abraham did. And because of that, God blessed him. Abraham became one of the most wealthy men in all of, and I'm not suggesting that God will monetarily bless us. But Abraham was blessed in order to be a blessing. And the number one way that Abraham was a blessing was through his line, Jesus Christ came into existence. The Messiah came into this earth and ultimately paid the penalty for us. And he had a part to play in blessing the nations through that. But we too have a part to play in that. Last place we're going to go. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a couple of different passages. I wrote the second Peter one, or the first Peter one in there as well. We're not going to look at it this morning. But I encourage you guys to take a look at that also because it says the same point that we're going to find in 2 Corinthians, which is right towards the end of your Bible, on the other side. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of my very favorite passages. I find myself coming back to this again and again. Because we remember that we are imperfect men and women. Every single one of us is, is <laughs> intimately familiar with our brokenness. The ways that we have not trusted God. The ways in which we have rebelled. The ways in which we've fallen short. We're all aware of it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, we are reminded of our standing in light of what Jesus Christ has done. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, <clears throat> and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, entrusted us to be his representatives. That, in God, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. 
as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. We have a part to play in this. We have been blessed monetarily for sure. We live in one of the most affluent counties of the most affluent nation in the entire world. If you drove a car here this morning, you're in like top 5%. If you have food in your fridge and more than like five pairs of clothes, you are in the top 1% to 2% of the nation. Guys, we're wealthy. But that's not the point. Because our blessing goes far beyond what we have. God's not in the pro- Despite what some health and wealth preachers will say, that God wants to bless us monetarily, the blessing that is really th- that matters is that we, fallen human beings, get to have relationship with our God. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we can enter into relationship with him. But we have not simply been blessed for our own comfort. Otherwise, why wouldn't God just, the moment we accept him, why wouldn't he whisk us into heaven so we could get the heck out of this broken world where our flesh continues to drag us down and where the enemy continues to take shots at us? Because we then become Christ's ambassadors, his representatives. We get to be the ones who say, guess what? You don't have to be dependent upon your own strength. You don't have to strive to be good enough. I'm the first one to say, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be called a son of God, and yet he has called me his son through Jesus Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. We are saved by faith because of God's grace, not because of anything that we've done. And that's good news. And we get to be light bearers into our spheres of influence. This morning, as some of us were praying upstairs before the service, somebody said, you know, I want that this church would not simply be a lighthouse to keep people from the rocks, but that we would be a searchlight, finding people who are floundering in the water and then being able to go and help them. And in some ways, that's what I hope this church will become and what we are that this place would be a place where we are equipped to then go back into our spheres of influence, into our workplaces, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, to be light bearers, to be ambassadors of hope and reconciliation, to be the hands of God ministering. Not perfect. We're never going to do it perfectly. But to be broken people who say, "I I can't fully explain it, but God is true. I have seen him to be real in my own life. And he loves me. And he loves you. That's the invitation that we have to be his ambassadors. So let me pray for us and the, the worship team is going to come up. <laughs> Bow your heads with me. Father God, I am so grateful that you use broken vessels to pour out your love. I'm so grateful that you allow us to not only be called your sons and your daughters, but to represent you. And I pray that we would represent you well, not by our own strength, but Holy Spirit, help us just strip away the stuff that gets in the way, that we would be loving ambassadors, and that the world would know that we are your disciples through the way we love one another. Have your way with us. And I pray that this church, this community of of believers 
would spread light to our community, into our city, into our county, into our spheres of influence? Would you use us as tools to advance your kingdom for your name's sake and for the sake of those around us who are your children and don't even know it and are drowning in the darkness of this world and are desperately in need of hope and have pretty much gotten to the point where they've given up hope? Jesus, in your name, amen. Amen.